Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. As part of my research into grief, I've come to know grief can be isolating and community is essential to explore, survive, and heal with grief. I co-facilitate the Pause, Breathe, Restore retreats, along with wellness coach Erin Vanderkoy. We help people engage and move forward with grief in a safe, supportive, and healing community. Our next grief retreat will be held at the Oregon Coast, October 3rd through 6th. Information about this retreat can be found at pausebreatherestore.com and in our show notes. Gratitude and Greatness explores our relationship with grief, the gratitude for our humanity, and the greatness we attain when we tell our stories. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. Met with the losses of her father and a number of peers in the art community, contemporary artist Marn Lucas shifts her focus from sexuality to death. Working as a death doula, she emphasizes art's importance to our humanity. I speak with Marn about her Bardo project, where she works with dying artists to help them to complete their legacy projects. Bardo is the space between death and rebirth. So there's this period of several days where certain rituals are performed over a dead body. That in-between space I find really interesting because we, at least in Western culture, don't have a lot of point of reference for that space. If you are diagnosed with a terminal illness, you are not living your best life the way you self-identified. Prior to being told you had that illness, that terminal illness, you're just living your life. Now you have a bad diagnosis. From that point forward, you're looking at this brief period of time that's the rest of your life. So you're no longer living your old life. You have to live this completely new version, but you're even more acutely aware of the end point. Yeah. So you're in a weird in-between space. So I'm using that term loosely, not for the space between death and rebirth, but it's the space between living your old best life and then this new journey of dying. My work dealt with a body quite a bit. I'm known as a photographer and photographing a lot of nudes, myself, other people, men and women, everybody. And then I got more and more interested in birth. I was able to be on a couple of family births, the birth of my best friend's daughter. I filmed a birth in infrared for one of my video projects. As I was developing this project about death and dying, it's interesting that I was allowed to participate in several births in a two-year period while I was developing Bardo Project. And I had the distinct experience during the most recent birth as the baby was coming out of the birth canal and I saw the baby's head crowning. I had a very visceral body feeling. This is exactly the same as death. You come out of the tunnel and you leave through the tunnel in some philosophical way and also right. maybe, maybe in some physical way. It was like an aha moment of I am on the right track. This is the work I was always meant to be doing. I'm thinking about just that classic image of that old holding a baby by its feet and spanking its first breath into them. And then also that holding on and witnessing that 
last gasping breath of somebody as they go? That's the cycle of life. I mean, those classic imagery of the Ouroboros, the serpent eating its tail. I mean, every ancient culture has some reference for the cycle of life. I would say when I was younger, I'm sure you were aware of these life cycles, but I saw it in a very scientific way, very biological way. Now I see it on multiple planes, how interconnected everything really is. I was raised in a very atheistic household. You know, my parents were intellectual. They believed in knowledge. You know, in my family, books were the most important possession we had. Books and nature. Stewardship of the land, taking care of nature, and education and knowledge was the most important thing. I was also raised with the idea of leave the campsite cleaner than the way you found it. Yeah. If you use that in life, you're pretty good. But I wasn't given a lot of spiritual framework. I had to find that on my own, which I do. That works for me. But the more I experienced death, the more I started to see like, oh, it's not just this biological thing. You know, you begin and then you end. While I understood that energy is neither created nor destroyed, I didn't see it in a metaphysical way. I didn't see it in a spiritual way. I saw it in a very scientific way. Until when I was 28 years old, I lost my father. He was only 51. That just tore the lid off of everything I thought I knew about the universe. It was just such a profound experience to be that young, to lose a parent. Your parents are how you arrive on the planet. You're going to survive them. You're going to always be older than them, but you're also, you become like a baby again because they're how you got here. So you're in this strange place that takes a while through grief to figure out who you are beyond that death. My father's death was the beginning of this whole journey. What's out there afterwards? You're redefining yourself as an individual apart from the family unit. Which is interesting because we all have our roles. You want to believe that you're autonomous and that you are not the role that was assigned to you. Especially when you're like 16. Yes. (laughs) And I still have that, you know. I'm 50 and I still have the, you're not the boss of me, Gene. Mm Mm-hmm. So losing my father was challenging because he was the person I sort of resisted. I'm the oldest of three daughters. I've always been expected to have a lot of responsibility. I've always been an overtly responsible person. But coupled with that, I'm still 17. You know, 17-year-old skater, skipping class. I've always maintained that kind of sensibility of like, you're not the boss of me. I'm going to create my own path, even today. Yeah. I'm still redefining myself. Well, even your artwork in particular, I find it really fascinating, your art, how you've gone from the human form. I kept thinking of the word of corporal and then the word of corpse. (laughs) And I kept kept thinking about how you've gone from, do I throw that word decay out there? But Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, because so much of the work that I'm familiar with that you've done is about beauty and sexuality. If you look at Eros and Thanatos, they are the opposite sides of the same coin. Everything that drives us in sexuality and sensuality and relationship, that drive to couple is really also reproductive. It's both emotional, we need it to survive, but it's also survival of the species. And then you create new life and then you die off. The life cycle I've experienced just with my own artwork, if you really look at the work I did, like in my 20s and 30s, was all of this sort of like erotic art and art about the body 
and a lot of self-exploration and also just really wanting to reclaim women's bodies. I mean, I photograph everyone, but really just being a woman, being able to say, hey, I can photograph women's bodies. You know, this is traditionally a male art form. My interests have definitely shifted as I transitioned, you know, then I started exploring birth, even though I never had children. I'm very maternal. You're the oldest sister. I'm the oldest sister. I am basically auntie to my friend's kids, you know, my own nieces. I'm sort of an auntie to my friends. I'm a natural born caregiver and very empathic. So I'm hardwired for that. And then as I have gone through menopause, I can clearly see now as I went through perimenopause kind of early, that's when I started doing this project. As I was hanging my show, in New York, Bardo Project, the first iteration of this, I was installing it on my 50th birthday. And I realized, oh, I'm now postmenopausal and I'm doing all this work about death. And now I'm an end of life doula. I actively do that work outside of this art project. So my interests have really followed my biological clock. Yeah. You know, so I think I'm steering the boat here. Well, Am I? The boat is steering The vessel you. is steering me. <laughs> the vessel is steering my intellect. I thought it was the other way around. You know, I've always had this fierce idea that I'm so independent. And now I really wonder, like, are we? <laughs> Thank you for listening in to this episode of Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness. We appreciate you following the work we do and would love it if you'd share us with your friends and family. Your recommendation helps us reach more ears and build upon the work we're doing. I can't separate myself from art because it's like, you know, this is just what I kind of woke up doing. Art and spirituality are sort of in tandem because I think beauty is a valid pursuit. Originally, I thought that's what I was dedicating my life to was presenting beauty in different platforms. Now I realize that it's more about love, mm. right? This end of life work is really about my spiritual take on it is everything is love. Love is what's connecting everything. I've had some pretty profound, strange experiences that kind of led me to that. And so what I thought was about beauty, I realize is... Like what, for example? You know, every time I have lost someone close to me, you know, I've had some pretty profound experiences of them visiting in some capacity. It could just be a voice in your head that is so clear. And of course, as soon as you acknowledge it, your intellect then says, did that happen? Mm. But I've had very specific meetings where those people come to close up shop with me. Even though you say your goodbyes in person, they're not well or they're very challenged. And these are clear as day. I'm right here. That first happened with my father. I didn't believe in that until it happened. And now it's almost like a banal happening. It's usually in a strange dream state mm -hmm. or in nature are the two places yeah. where it's easiest to access. I've had really silly interactions. I've had a couple of different dreams about different people who have passed. And, you know, because I grew up in Portland, riding around on the TriMet bus in the rain, I've had a couple of dreams where I'm like on the bus wow. and I'm just riding the bus and it's windows are foggy, it's raining. And I'm like, uh, this again? I kind of feel like I'm in high school. And then all of a sudden the person's sitting next to me and they're like, everything's fine. I'm totally fine. I just want to say goodbye again. And I'm, I'm totally okay. And then I wake up and I'm like, oh, that damn bus. <laughs> <laughs> that feeling. So vivid. Of being on the bus is, I imagine it's both invigorating in a way, but mm -hmm. also kind of sad too, right? Yeah. Like, well, I've had 
dreams of people I've lost. And I both am excited to have had that engagement, but the letdown is also pretty yeah. heavy too. It's pretty heavy because then you have a tremendous sense of longing. You know, we want that person to still be in the physical form. The only way I can explain the experiences I've had consistently since I lost my father 23 years ago is, and this ties back to love, if you had to hug someone, you know, if you hug somebody and you do it with intention towards each other, there's that feeling between yeah. you. If you had to hug someone with that same intention and you didn't have a body, mm-hmm. that's exactly what it feels like. You still feel the exact warmth and love and intention. There's just no physical form. It feels that direct. And that's happened almost each time with people I've lost. And now I kind of look forward to it like, okay, well, I know this person's going to pass. And trust me, like even though I collaborate with dying artists and I'm working as an end-of-life doula, I'm still pretty devastated by death. I'm a very sensitive person. I can cry for a month and just be completely flattened, but then I just sort of bounce back and go back to my clinical optimist default setting. (laughs) And I think that's what allows me to do this work is I am a chronic optimist, but I experience things very intensely. I'm probably not the best candidate to do end-of-life work in that I really fall for my collaborators Mm. as friends. You know what I mean? Like they just are mine. They become part of my family. They're part of my landscape. So your collaborators are the people involved in the Bardo Project. Yes. So basically I had this idea to collaborate with dying artists. Originally it was just collaborate with hospice patients. I interviewed at a few different hospice places in Portland and in New York City and nobody was interested. They're like, no, you cannot collaborate with our patients. You're supposed to be somewhat separate. You don't give them anything but your first name. Don't get attached. So they weren't very interested. I had a friend from Portland, Oregon, Chris Brunkhart. He was a photographer. He was known in the 90s as a very accomplished snowboard photographer. He really changed the face of that sport. He moved to New York City with his then boyfriend, Ezekiel. When he came to New York, I just welcomed him and we didn't really know. We were acquaintances and I reached out to him So we would attend art openings and spend time together. Within a year, he got this diagnosis of stage four colon cancer. Mm. I attended lots of doctor visits with him, and I was very close with he and Zeke. He said, well, the bad news is I have stage four cancer, and I have a maybe two-year life expectancy. And I'm like, well, what could be the good news? (laughs) He's like, well, I want to be your first collaborator for Bardo Project. He knew that I'd been struggling to get this project off the ground for a couple of years. And he just said, let's do this. So what'd you do? It was a completely intuitive process. Next was getting him moved back to Portland so he could get care and be with his family, start helping him edit his life's work. He then married his partner, Zeke, and I accompanied them on part of their honeymoon. And my role was sort of life doula and photo assistant. So I drove them in a camper van all over Iceland. Oh my God. Yeah. And he was tremendously ill. We're in the middle of nowhere and he's declining. We're having some pretty scary times, but he's determined to get out of the van in the pouring rain to make his last body of landscape photographs. It was very intense, but I learned a lot about myself on that trip. What I am able to handle being in pretty dire situations So he was then hospitalized in Iceland, but he did make it home after a couple of weeks. He was able to produce a coffee table book and an art show, attend it, and I flew out for that, and he died 10 days later. Mm. You know, he was only 47 years old when he passed. His way of coping with 
a terminal illness was, I'm going to make art every single day. He didn't want to talk about hospice plans or any of that traditional stuff. He was just like, no, I'm going to just go for it. So as his doula, I mean, I'm familiar with a birth doula. You get to write your birth plan. He didn't want to write his death plan. So his way of coping with it was to just make art. And so I was able to assist with that and helping with the book and the art show, more art project related. But that works well. We're both photographers. Yeah. So we had a lot we could share. I'm sure there was a sense of urgency. What was that like? I mean, you're up against this relatively fluid timeline because you don't know how long he has. How did you do that? You just have to be able to suspend all plans. This is the problem with these collaborations. I'm at the mercy of the person's declining health, their energy level, their emotional state. They can be in tremendous amount of pain. It's all baby steps. You basically just have to be okay with whatever you get done. As an artist, I like things to be really elaborate and you really have to simplify. Mm -hmm. So it's been good for me, just how to plan, how to be. And like anything, when you're dealing with death, you have to really live moment to moment. You're forced to stay in the present at all times. I can't get carried away with, well, what I really want to do is this elaborate project with this person. Right. Being in the moment with a person is so important. It's like harm reduction. Meet the person where they're at. That model of care works. I used to be part of Danzine, which was a now defunct nonprofit in Portland, Oregon, that was for sex workers and IV drug users, advocating for better health and safety and for equal rights to housing and opportunities. The idea of harm reduction is you can't stop people from abusing drugs. You can't stop that from happening, but you can help someone make a safer decision that day, whether that's needle exchange or safe sex, not exposing family members, partners. And that model of care really works in end-of-life care. You're meeting the person where they're at that day. What can we do today? Did you ever in a million years think that you would be using what you learned there? No, but it's so interesting because these things that are considered fringe, it's really not fringe. I mean, there's an addict in every family. People are very judgmental about like those people over there. And the irony is nobody wants to talk about death either. And who isn't going to die? We're all going to die. So I'm finding it interesting that these things that people find uncomfortable to talk about, sexuality, drug addiction and dependency, sex work, death and dying. These are all taboo subjects. I never thought of myself outwardly as somebody who works in the margins of taboo. I don't know. I'm just a humanist. Yeah. Only now at 50, I'm like, oh, okay. I guess <laughs> I guess I kind of have a thing for the taboo, but not in a titillating way. It's not titillating to me. I think people might be titillated by my work. Yeah. Especially my work in the past. But I am not approaching it out of titillation. I really love these people. It's really about compassion. Well, taboo is what you make taboo. And just by sitting here talking about it, we're just kicking that to the curb, right? Right. <laughs> right. You have a partner who works... In the ICU. <laughs> in the ICU. He does end-of-life care too, right? Or he's moving in that direction? He's moving in that direction. So my partner, Jeff Struthers, works in the ICU doing a lot of like bridge to transplant. I mean, he deals with very, very sick people. He's a nurse practitioner. My mother was a, an ICU nurse for premature babies my entire growing up. 
And after that, she became a lactation consultant. So I grew up around healthcare. I've always been very fascinated with medical stuff, always. But I don't think I'm hardwired. I don't have the medical personality to be a little, I can't step outside the ring. I'm too emotional and empathic. But I grew up with, you know, my mom being a nurse and my partner being a nurse practitioner. All of the death in his life has been clinical. He also volunteers for disasters. He does disaster relief. So he's been to Haiti. He was in Sri Lanka when the tsunami happened. So he does that kind of work. It's all clinical. All the death in my life is personal. I've probably lost 50 people who are close friends, family members. I've had a tremendous amount of death in my life, all personal. And his is complete opposite. So it's interesting. It was not a goal to collaborate necessarily. He was on his career track and I was on my creative track. We've always been total opposites. Now they're starting to merge a little more and he does want to work more towards sort of a destination hospice idea. But that takes time to develop and our culture isn't quite ready. Even as an end-of-life doula, like it's hard for end-of-life doulas to find placement in hospice because a lot of hospices are resistant to us. They're like, well, we already have our volunteers. We already have our staff. And an end-of-life doula is an extra support role, just like a birth doula is there for the mother and family. We do the same thing for the client, the dying person, and their families. We're an extra role to support their needs. It could be very simple needs, like, what do you want people to do when they enter your room? Should they take their shoes off? Do they have to light a candle? Do you want them to meditate for five minutes and not bring their BS in with them? It could be very simple. How do you want to close up shop gracefully? Mm. Whether that's a project, it could be putting together a photo album, a website. It could be a cookbook of recipes, collect family recipes. It could be a scroll and everybody can add to it as they visit the person and add photographs and memories. You're asking, how can I support the awesome work that's happening on the Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness podcast? Become a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have something valuable to offer our listeners, let's talk. We'd love to invite you to sponsor the show. I think I intuitively started doing this end-of-life doula work without knowing what an end-of-life doula was. And then somebody sent me a link to a podcast and I was like, oh, I think that's what I'm doing. But I focus on the legacy work to have creativity. That's a major part of my life. So that's what I'm bringing to legacy work is creativity and legacy as a spiritual tool. Ah, The other parts of being and end-of-life doula are just holding space for that person. There's also the idea that no one should die alone. And the dying often have a hard time leaving with family members in the room. You often hear about, they go for a walk, they go get lunch, they go to have a cigarette, and then the person passes. But we are an impartial role. Like, we're there to support that person, but sometimes the person's incapacitated. You can't communicate with them. Mm -hmm. You still talk to them as though they're a friend. You let them know you're there, your name, and that you're just in the corner holding space. You don't even have to talk to them. But that can allow them to know that they are safe 
they're loved, they can leave because they can't always leave with a family member. They're worried about how their family members are going to be when they're gone. I think it keeps people tethered in a painful way. Mm. We have a lot more to offer than just legacy work. It's just that Bardo Project for me is a artistic manifestation that I'm pursuing. It's a lot of things, really, because it's a collaboration. But you're also holding space for this other person. That's tough. It's tough to be serving someone else, but then also collaborating with that person. Can you think of a place where those two purposes kind of rubbed up against each other? I'm a highly collaborative person, so I don't see conflict in it. A lot of artists are baffled. Like, I don't know how you collaborate with people so much. And sure, it has its challenges. I've had backfires. It doesn't stop me. I really collaborate well with others. I learn so much from the process. They push me. And when you collaborate, you often have different skill sets. Mm -hmm. So I'm always learning. I'm still learning from the people who passed away. Like the three artists that I collaborated with, Chris Brunkhart, Meryl Callen, and Joe Heaps Nelson, I still get these little glimpses of like, oh, that's what they meant. Ah, I love that. You know, I still am learning from them. I'm holding space for them, and I'm collaborating with them. Sometimes things they say, I don't really understand until long after they're gone. In some ways, you can carry on their work. Yes. When they're gone. Yes. Oh. And one thing I have not done throughout this process, I collaborated with three people back-to-back. Then I applied for a grant in New York City, had this exhibition in Harlem. I was also part of a big death and dying conference called Reimagine the End of Life. So it's been go, go, go. Lots of deadlines. All of the writing I've been doing for the past year has been grant writing. And it's creative writing only in the sense of it's to serve a press release or a grant. It's not real personal. Mm. What I need to do is take a step back and spend maybe six months writing about these three people that I collaborated with because I was so in the moment serving them and then they would pass and then I'm trying to help their families with memorials and whatnot while I'm trying to get the show off the ground. I really need to take a step back and just write about each person and the situation and what I learned from it. Yeah. Because I think that's what's missing from the project. I'm just sort of presenting their work, their story. It's almost like the tip of the iceberg. So I need to write and and spend a lot of alone time and just really have a little pause. Yeah. Because you can't schedule death. And I've really been at the mercy of these crazy schedules. But what I can do is really try to think about how this has changed me before Mm -hmm. I decide what the next iteration of Bardo Project will be. And so you definitely intend to continue with it. Absolutely. Artists, musicians, writers, the kind of creative class, these are my people. I don't have children. I do have a flexible lifestyle as an artist. I did realize in October, as I was turning 50 and hanging the show, I was like, oh, this is my legacy. This project really is my legacy. And I'm going to keep doing it. I love it. You know, I'm happy to collaborate with anyone. They don't have to be an artist. It's just... You know, that is my first language. Well, and somewhere in the middle of all this, too, you went to this artist residency, Kohler, which is like the super sexy bathroom. Yeah, sinks and toilets and bathtubs. 
I had been applying to the arts industry artist residency program of the Kohler Company for eight years in a row. I had visited the Kohler factory with a collaborator, Bruce Conkle. I had been applying with all this nature, but this crazy eco-baroque nature-based art. Got rejected every time. Sort of in the 11th hour, I had written an application and decided to scrap it. And like the day of the deadline, rewrote the whole proposal for Bardo Project, which I had not made any real artwork related to it. I'd just been documenting people in photography and just kind of being there for them. And I'd only had my first collaborator, Chris Brunkhart. I told him, I'm going to apply. I'm going to use some images of you. I know you're not feeling great. Got his blessing. He was really excited about it. And I applied to Kohler with Bardo Project the day I was flying to Iceland to meet Chris and Zeke to do this big bucket list trip as their doula, I found out that I got accepted. I was so floored. I was utterly blown away. So I get there and I'm like, guess what? I'm going to Wisconsin, Sheboygan, Wisconsin. This was August when I was going to Iceland. My residency began at the end of January. And Chris was like, well, I'm coming to visit you. And so I had to let them know, like, listen, my collaborator, it's probably not likely this is going to work, but he wants to come. And they said, well, we can absolutely have a wheelchair, Mm -hmm. go on tour of all the factories. We'd love to have him. They welcomed me with open arms. He did pass away January 2nd of 2016. So I had been in Portland. I went to New York. He passed away. I went back to Portland for the memorial. I then had four days to pack and go on the residency of a lifetime. This is the kind of residency that artists spend a year preparing for, making molds, driving a U-Haul to Wisconsin, and then going into production of their sculptures in cast iron or porcelain. They have two factories. I showed up with a suitcase and a bunch of ideas, (laughs) completely grief-stricken. I just lost my friend. I spent four winter months in Sheboygan, literally in a factory, 14 hours a day, seven days a week. And I did both the cast iron foundry and the porcelain subcasting, two months in each factory. And so I really was like grief camp. I picture like the Wizard of Oz in hell. (laughs) as a factory and grieving. And unwittingly, I was going through menopause. The factory workers were the ones who told me like, "Um, you know, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but my old lady is going through the same thing. (laughs) I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm all defensive. They're like, well, it is a blizzard and you have all the windows open. It's snowing in here. And you have your jumpsuit tied around your waist and you're sweating. Oh my God. I just love that (laughs) <laughs> I just love that a factory worker just said, my old lady, that's pretty brave. Really brave because of this whole corporate culture. They have to be very careful how they interact with the artist. They're not allowed to say anything. So, of course, I basically told them, like, look, I'm like Mae West here. <laughs> and if you're in my little taped off art area, you can say whatever you want. And my studio mate, Undine Broad, she's a ceramic artist in upstate New York. She was the same. I mean, I had the best studio mate, housemate possible. So we were like Mae West 1 and 2, and we really bonded with the workers. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. I came out of there with a little bit of PTSD, and my friends in New York all said I had culture shock for six months. They said I didn't really talk, and I was inarticulate, and all I could talk about was the factory. 
<laughs> but there is where I made the first sculptures for Bardo Project about Chris Bronckhart, about these sort of themes of death, dying, transformation, loss, grandmothers. I want to hear more about the art you created. <laughs> I did make a bunch of sort of Ouroboros and figure eight sort of snake pieces in cast iron and brass. I took a wool Icelandic glove. It was a mitten mm. was it, that Chris had bought this pair of gloves in Iceland that he loved. When I said goodbye to him for the last time, he only had one glove left. He had lost one in the hospital. And I asked him if I could take it with me as a good luck charm to keep in my toolbox. And he was kind of grumpy because it meant we were really saying goodbye for yeah. the last time. But he said yes. And I would take it out and just sob into this wool mitten when nobody was looking. I don't know why I didn't see it. But I realized finally, as I was about to leave the cast iron factory, oh, this is the piece I was supposed to make the whole time. So I recast his hand based on looking at all my photos of his hands with clay and wire, mm -hmm. put it inside the glove, and then found a little thrift store camera to put in the hand so it looked like his hand with that, that glove oh. on as if it were holding a camera in a relaxed manner. And that was the hardest piece to make. It has such gravity. This hand weighs about seven pounds because it's cast brass. It has such gravity, but it's so intense to hold something that really does look like his hand. I didn't know I was going to make that piece. Well, my first thought is, what did his partner think when he saw it? I think he's really honored by the work. I think it was also very hard to see. I've made photographs that I printed onto porcelain tiles of Chris. I mean, it's a lot to see all of that work. There's a lot of photos from our trip from Iceland. Yeah. I exhibited photos that Chris took from the same trip and then my photos of that whole journey. Yeah, and his husband, he is living in Portland, Oregon, moving forward and redefining himself. He's really changed for the better. I mean, he is becoming a very strong man. I can't even begin to imagine what he experienced and what he's continuing to experience. We are now like siblings. Yeah? Yeah. That's the consolation prize. Zeke and I are truly like siblings. It's really beautiful. Your input matters. If you have thoughts on this episode, check out the show notes to find out how to contact us. We'd love your feedback, suggestions, or just a thumbs up. We need to find an island for you to go write for six months. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do a self-directed residency. I tend to house sit. For, I have a lot of friends and community on Maui, right? Cue the violins. Nice. <laughs> but I have a community there of artists, environmentalists, and plant scientists. So in the summer, I usually go and house sit, bring a laptop, and just do a bunch of writing and be in nature. And I was born in Hawaii, so it does feel like I'm going back to my beginning. The relationship I have to Hawaii is pre-verbal. I think we left when I was just about two. And I didn't go back until I was in my late 20s. And every time I'm there, I feel more home than I can explain. But I also can't really articulate it. 
Yeah, me too. It's like a baby. It's like I feel like, well, my mother was pregnant the whole time she was there swimming with me, you know, in her belly. And then I was born there. And so I feel very whole because that's sort of like my personal genesis. I keep going back there to get grounded. And living in New York City is insane. Yeah, right. You know, I'm from Oregon. I need nature. I need green. You can't tell me that Central Park is nature. (laughs) <laughs> it's a landscaped park. It's beautiful. It's an asset, cultural asset, but it's not nature. So I will do some writing this summer. I'm going to Lisbon in mm. the end of May. There's a conference called Fem Meeting, Women in Art, Science, and Technology. So I'll be presenting work there and networking with lots of really interesting women from around the world. I am collaborating with a lot of female artists, and that's very important to me. I love working with men, but I have traditionally collaborated with a lot of male artists, and I'm really shifting my energy towards supporting women. And I also like to mentor young women. So that's also part of, in a way, Bardo Project, like my outreach, that's never going to stop. Do you see yourself concurrently pursuing legacy work and doula work? I see where they start to mesh together, but I also see them as such separate Separate, things too. Separate, yeah. Well, I am seeking certification through INALDA, International End-of-Life Doula Association. So I'm doing a lot of hospice shifts right now at a senior home in Queens, New York. There's not really a way to get paid as an end-of-life doula, so it's pretty challenging to be a full-time working artist. Yeah. And doing this Bardo project that's completely funded by me, credit cards. I'm doing all this volunteering hours to become an elder certified. The only way you can make a living as an end-of-life doula, much like a birth doula, is to have a private practice. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be any more self-employed than I already am, you know? Yeah. So I'm trying to get certified now to get that sort of out of the way. I want to get in on the ground floor because I think the end-of-life care industry is going to be changing drastically. You know, the baby boomers are all going to be going and the good news is they want a quality experience. Yeah. They don't want to be in a white hospital room with no personal agency. Right. They want a beautiful experience. And that is the first wave that's going to push this agenda forward. But I just want to get certified and get that kind of nuts and bolts out of the way. I think that me doing Bardo Project and doing a lot of like podcasts and press and getting the work out there will push this agenda of legacy. It doesn't have to be an art project. We should all, all of us, should be thinking about what is our legacy. You don't have to think about this on your deathbed. Right. Or when you think your sand in the hourglass is running out. We should be thinking about this throughout our lives. What are we about? What am I doing? What am I creating? And for many people, it's their family, right? It's just sort of naturally part of their roadmap. Right. For Yeah, for some people, their children are their legacy. Absolutely. There's this line from this... Mary Oliver poem that I haven't been able to let go of for God, months. It's like, what are you going to do with this one wild and precious life? Exactly. We need to be present, own it. It is never too late to do your own end-of-life planning. Part of what I'm doing as an end-of-life doula is advocacy for better end-of-life planning. We all wait until the wheels come off the bus. Mm-hmm. And someone in our family is incapacitated, can't speak for themselves, and then everybody's arguing about what mom wanted. Everybody should have 
their end-of-life care plans in order. I don't care if you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. Right. It really should be done just like you get regular checkups. Yeah. Those things should be discussed among family, your partner, your friends, because sometimes family is not the best option right. to execute your wishes. I think Bardo Project is also about advocacy, not just legacy work. So I do a lot of volunteering with New York Compassion and Choices because I believe in the right to end your life medically if you have no other options. Yeah. So I'm really interested in all of the advocacy component. And, you know, when I have an art show or when I do a public art residency, I make everybody fill out the paperwork. You do? Yeah, we do it together. Really? Yeah. You have to fill out the paperwork and promise to talk to a family member about their wishes so somebody else knows that it's been filled out. I love that. So when I come to your yes. your next show, <laughs> you're going to make me fill out paperwork. Yep. Here's an advanced life directive. Here's a healthcare proxy form. There's all these great forms out there that make it very easy. Well, what do you want your situation to look like? What do you want to smell like? How do you want your room to be? I mean, just... Mm. We spend all this time curating our lives. <laughs> we should spend a little bit of effort on your end-of-life plans. Someone who's dying, it's their death. And yet, it's often dictated by everyone else in the room. Yeah. I'm really interested in advocacy as much as I am in this particular creative endeavor. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. If you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or topics you'd like to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. Call or text our show at 503-454-6646 or send us a message via the contact link at griefgratitudegreatness.com. Be sure to let your friends know about us and join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.